This is The Guardian. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Boris Johnson suffered his most humiliating rebellion yet while Omicron cases rise exponentially. I'm Rowena Mason, deputy political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The eyes to the right, 369. The nose to the left, 126. Yesterday, the government's Plan B Covid measures passed through Parliament despite significant rebellion from within Boris Johnson's own party. The plan includes expanding compulsory face masks, changing isolation rules and introducing Covid passports requiring people to show proof of vaccination or a negative test to enter large venues. The latter was fiercely opposed by 99 angry Tory MPs. So, Mr Deputy Speaker, this is a slippery slope down which I do not want to slip. It was a dramatic night which came on top of an already disastrous week for the Prime Minister, who is facing tough questions over Downing Street parties during lockdown and who funded his wallpaper. So where could all this end up? Could a leadership contest be on the cards? And has Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, been making a pitch? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to discuss the latest from Westminster, I'm joined by The Guardian's political correspondent, Peter Walker. Peter, it's lovely to have you on. Let's look at yesterday's vote in Parliament. The government's new Covid measures were passed, but only because Labour backed them all. Can you just run us through what the new rules are, what was agreed and what were the controversial points? Well, there were four measures and in order of controversy, starting first, there was no vote whatsoever because no one disagreed on it, on the idea of letting people who are contacts with someone who's got Omicron to test daily rather than having to self-isolate, not least because at the rate the virus is spreading at the moment, pretty much the whole country would have to isolate reasonably soon. It was a tiny bit more controversial on the rules to um, extend mandatory mask use to more areas like cinemas and theatres and things like that. But there are only 41 people who voted against that. There was a rebellion both on Labour and Tory sides on a vote to mandate uh, vaccinations for frontline NHS and care workers. That got 100 people in total voting against it. 
But the big one came on the so-called vaccine certificates, vaccine passports, call them the, what you will, which was this plan, which means that for people to go into nightclubs and football grounds and similarly crowded venues, in the future, they're going to have to show either a proof of two vaccinations, soon to go up to three, or a recent negative lateral flow test. And the total number of Tory rebels was 99. So that's way, way more than Johnson's working majority. So he needed Labour to get it through, which for Prime Minister is not a particularly comfortable position to be in. So what do we know about these rebels who were opposing the COVID passports? What kind of uh, MPs are they and why do they not want them to be brought in? It's a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, the majority of them are the ones you would expect. The ones, a lot of them are connected to the COVID recovery group, which is this group of, I guess, formerly quite Brexity MPs who have been sceptical throughout about the need for the toughest COVID rules. So there's a lot of them, you know, the types like Steve Baker and all the usual ones. But mixed in amongst that, there were some more kind of liberal Tories. There was Tom Tugan uh, hat, there was Giles Watling, the kind of quite mild and, you know, reasonably liberal MP. There was Tracy Crouch. So, you know, it, it was slightly mixed. I mean, it's basically a civil liberties argument. There were these slightly kind of bellicose comments about, you know, we want, don't want to be a country where people have to present papers to get into things. And there's connected to this, this kind of wider worry amongst some Conservative MPs that they think that Omicron is not going to be as serious as perhaps build. And they worry that, you know, partly this is this kind of big step to introduce this basically European style vaccination ID card. Um, and they also think it's going to unfairly hit uh, hospitality venues and things like that when, you know, there's no government support for them. Um, but it's mainly a kind of libertarian argument. And what do you think the effect of this rebellion will be? Will it make Boris Johnson more reluctant to implement some tougher restrictions in the days and weeks to come as we see what scientists are warning will be a rising tide of Omicron sweeping across the country? It's a really interesting one because this rebellion, it's arguable that if it happened, you know, if the vote was taking place a week later, then it's possible that the sheer scale of Omicron cases and the first signs of what that's going to do to the uh, NHS might have made it not quite the same as it was. So, I mean, in the most basic sense, a rebellion of that size is always going to make a Prime Minister more wary. And Johnson did promise that if during the Christmas parliamentary recess, if he does have to have tougher measures in, then he will, you know, recall Parliament so MPs can vote. And there would be a big disincentive because no Prime Minister wants to have so many of their own MPs oppose them that they're reliant on opposition votes. But it's very, very difficult to tell because Omicron is moving so incredibly quickly. I mean, there's predictions of up to a million infections in the UK in a single day, you know, in the lead up to uh, Christmas. And I wonder if some of those rebel MPs would have second thoughts if there's pictures coming in of hospitals being overwhelmed and other treatments being cancelled and doctors and nurses saying we simply can't cope. Do you think it's a sign of things to come in England and some of the other nations of the UK that in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon has gone much further and urged Scots to limit socialising to three households on an advisory, not a, not a legal basis? I think it is probably on both counts, both on the idea of trying to get people to socialise less at Christmas, but also not having a kind of mandatory order like it was last Christmas. I think it's very much going to be um, a voluntary thing. I'd be surprised if Johnson went as far as the Scottish plan, but I think certainly we can expect in the next you know, week or so a lot of messaging, certainly from health people and probably from politicians too, to say, you know, not only the usual stuff like take a lateral flow test before you visit people, but also 
be careful. You know, if you are planning to have, you know, 80 people in your house on Christmas Day, maybe think about it, maybe try and scale it back a bit. And how much do you think we can see this resistance from Tory MPs as a protest against the COVID measures? And how much is is simply a demonstration of Tory anger over other recent mistakes by Boris Johnson and chaos at number 10? As I guess with all these things, that whilst the impetus for the voting against is very specifically this measure, because there has been worries about vaccine passports for quite a long time, there is a sense that Johnson's authority is diminished and thus it's easier to rebel against the Prime Minister you don't respect quite so much. Because there have been a few rebellions in recent weeks which has seen not quite so many or not nearly as many Conservative MPs voting against the government. But there have been quite a few times where a lot of Tories have abstained or simply not bothered to actually go to Parliament. And all the stuff about the parties, all the stuff about the mishandling of various other things is, I don't know, I guess it's making some Conservatives think that, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if I know this guy because he might not be a number 10 for all that long. It seems like every day now we're seeing headlines about a new party, like the photo that's emerged this week of one at Tory party headquarters last year with a former Conservative candidate for London Mayor, Sean Bailey, surrounded by staff and a, and a great big open buffet. How do you think this is going to go down with the public, the voters, Peter? I think it goes down astonishingly bad. The MPs I've talked to haven't as yet received a kind of flood of angry emails they did over the Dominic Cummings lockdown stuff. But I think that's partly just because, I don't know, people maybe expect it from the government a little bit more, this slightly double-edged approach to the implementation of COVID rules. The, the, the polling seems to show there's a lot of anger. I think what's really, really damaging for the government is the fact that there's visual and audiovisual evidence of this. So the photos of Sean Bailey's party are completely astonishing. I mean, you know, the demonstrator tried to distance themselves from it, saying this was just organised by the people running his um, ill-fated mayoral campaign. But it looks really, really bad. This was in a period when London was certainly locked down and socialising, was not allowed. And this was incredibly clearly a Christmas party. There's two dozen people packed in for a photo. I mean, who thought taking a photo was a good idea? One's wearing a Christmas jumper, there's Christmas hats, and there's a hot and cold buffet. I mean, that kind of takes away the idea that you could argue this was some kind of impromptu gathering, you know, done on the spur of the moment. There was an actual buffet. So what do you think it would take, Peter, for there to be some sort of vote in no confidence in the Prime Minister? Is it pictures of him personally partying emerging or is it something to do with the Covid restrictions? What would it be? I think there's two possible routes, one of which is the idea, if it built up over time, that Boris Johnson was no longer an electoral asset to Conservative Party. If a series of by-elections got lost and if the polling showed Labour consistently in the lead, then, you know, we've seen this. It's a bit of a cliche about the Conservative Party. They're a very unsentimental bunch and will dump a leader the moment they think they're not likely to to win. And, and the second one, which people aren't really thinking about, but I think could be interesting, would be if there was any evidence of genuine wrongdoing connected to his personal conduct, both connected with the parties, but also with things like the financing of the Downing Street renovation of the flats. There's still a lot of unanswered questions with that. And if, hypothetically, the Parliamentary Commission of Standards decides to investigate and finds Johnson didn't declare all his money properly, he could be suspended from the Commons. And that for a sitting PM would be an extraordinarily damaging thing. Personally, how do you think all of these different sleaze scandals and party scandals have affected Johnson's own ego? 
and his authority when he couldn't convince 99 of his own MPs to back measures that he personally pleaded with them to support. I mean, it's very, very damaging in the sense that Johnson on Tuesday did, you know, speak directly to the backbench committee MP, the 1922 committee, and basically said, please do back these measures. And they just didn't. And that's a real sign of authority um, ebbing away. And that could be a temporary thing. But once it starts, it's quite difficult to claw back. And in terms of how it affects Johnson, it's difficult to tell. I mean, because he's this quite opaque character. There's even people who work with him quite closely say it's quite difficult to know what he thinks. His ego is quite famously a bulletproof thing. But you, you do kind of wonder that if it comes a point at which it just gets crisis after crisis after crisis, he might be thinking, you know, why am I even doing this? Why don't I just kind of give it all up and just you know, write books and write newspaper columns and make an enormous amount of money. Keir Starmer, on the other hand, made the interesting move of deciding to back the government on the COVID restrictions, which gave the rebels a sort of free hit against the government because they knew that they'd be able to rebel without making the measures fall entirely. Do you think that that was a politically smart move on Labour's part, Peter? I think it was almost the only thing that they could do because Labour had for quite some time, called for the imposition of these so-called Plan B COVID measures. And it would just look really opportunistic and frankly a bit weird to call for them and then when they were voted on to vote against them. But also, as you say, that if it was obvious that Labour was going to vote against them and the government could lose the votes, then that would have given, you know, Johnson's whips much more ability to arm twist the rebels. The rebellion would probably have been much, much less. And for Starmer, it's almost the ideal thing. He can look you know, statesmanlike, if that's what he chooses, by saying, I don't agree with this government, but on this point, they're doing the right thing. But also give, as you say, the free space for 99 of Johnson's own MPs to vote against him. Peter, you've been covering the North Shropshire by-election for us, and that is happening tomorrow. That could be a further really sticky episode for the Prime Minister if the Conservatives manage to lose that seat where they got a huge majority. How do you think it's looking at the moment versus the Lib Dems? The North Shropshire seat in its various forms has existed for about 190 years and it's been Conservative for all but two of them, which was from 1904 to 1906. It's very, very different to Chesham and Amersham, where the Lib Dems won a famous by-election victory last year. Unlike that, it's quite rural, it's quite Brexity, it's quite kind of solidly Tory. It's not that kind of internationalist soft Tory. So if people there are starting to get really disaffected with Boris Johnson, then Johnson is in quite a lot of trouble. And And certainly the canvassers who've been out there are saying there's a lot of criticism of Johnson. It just depends how it turns into votes. Well, we only have to wait until Friday morning to find out what the result of that will be. Peter Walker, thank you very much. Thank you. After the break, who is Liz Truss, one of the leading contenders to succeed Boris Johnson if there were to be a vacancy in number 10? We'll be right back. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. 
That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor at The Guardian. Now, as chaos reigned in Downing Street last week, one cabinet minister in Johnson's top team was eager to show she was calmly getting on with the job. In the face of a Russian threat on the Ukraine border, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, hosted a G7 meeting over the weekend and made sure there were some photo ops and patriotic speeches. She seemed keen to present herself as tough, confident, leader-like. So, as one of the main contenders to replace the Prime Minister in the event of a leadership contest, who is Liz Truss? And could she ward off competition from the other favourite, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak? Aubrey Allegretti spoke with The Guardian's diplomatic editor, Patrick Winter, and started by asking what kind of Conservative the Foreign Secretary is. Well, she's a very unusual Conservative politician just because of her history in the fact that she comes from a a very left-wing background. I think both her parents were on the left. She went uh, educated for partly in Scotland, and then she came down to Leeds where she was educated at a comprehensive school, got into Oxford, and there she joined the Oxford University Liberal Democrats, and I think she became president of that august organisation. And I was actually doing some original research trying to find out when she left the Liberal Democrats. And um, I spoke to a friend of hers who knew her at Oxford, and he said uh, he recognised her views were slowly changing at university, but she didn't take the plunge to join the Conservatives until after leaving in 1996. And from there on, she travels very far and fast to the right By 2010, she becomes an MP, and she's firmly on the right by then. She's no stranger to shifting her political views. Before the EU referendum, she was pro-Remain, and now she's one of the most avid Brexiteers. What changed her views? Well, she says what changed her views was that she thought there would be a sort of economic apocalypse when Brexit happened, and it didn't happen. In fact, um, she claims that Britain's uh, is now thriving outside the European Union, able to make these trade deals that um, it wasn't able to do before, and it's got a more independent um, foreign policy. I mean, obviously, there's quite a lot of people who've did a campaign for Remain in the Conservative Party and either um, sort of changed their views largely because they said the, the, the issue was settled. But um, but she actually took a slightly different position, which is that actually she'd been mistaken during the referendum and she was now a, a true convert and believer. Before she was promoted in September, Liz Truss was the International Trade Secretary. Some say she only really rolled over trade deals the UK already had with the EU, and yet she was promoted. Yeah, I mean, that is the criticism that basically these are agreements that were already in situ with the European Union and that there's not very much value added to them. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily the case of a couple of the deals um, Australia, uh, for instance. And I think it's true that she, a lot of this is kind of 
mind-numbingly dull, gritty detail. And actually, she did get on top of quite a lot of that detail. Um, I mean, it doesn't win you a lot of sort of brownie points at Westminster, but the civil servants who worked with her were, were impressed by her grasp of the detail. But for her, the big picture was just to show, you know, that to the Daily Express kind of readership that uh, Britain was unchained um, now outside the... Um, European Union, and we were forging this new identity. She's been known to make some interesting comments that often get replayed on social media, like her infamous cheese speech in 2014. We're producing more varieties of cheese than the French. Or the comment about pork markets. In December, I'll be in Beijing, opening up new pork markets. But how well do you think the public really know her? I think you're probably right. Um, there has been some polling, which is the Conservative Home website, which is very much the sort of home for activists, sort of adore her and put her top of the their polls and have for quite a while now. And then if you go to Conservative Conference, it's her speeches that lead to these large queues. But if you ask the general public what they know of her or what they think of her, she is sort of virtually nowhere. She's sort of down at 4% to the extent that people do have a view as who should succeed, uh, which Conservatives should succeed, um, Boris Johnson, it's Rishi Sunak that gets the majority position. Uh, there's not really much competition below that, except for a large tranche of don't knowers. Lots of Conservative MPs are unhappy with the tax and spend policies of Boris Johnson's administration, but Liz Truss has been keen to model herself on Margaret Thatcher a few weeks ago, posing for a picture in a tank resembling the former Conservative Prime Minister. Is this Liz Truss making her pitch to Conservative backbenchers? Absolutely. Uh, she curates her Flickr account very, very carefully. And um, there's a very large number of photographs there if you wish to go there. Um, she was at the G7, which is this sort of event for foreign ministers in Liverpool. And there are just hundreds of photos of her with other foreign ministers or her listening to the uh, Japanese foreign minister playing imagine on a piano but the tank episode i think is definitely um, that was intended and um, it's got a conscious echo of thatcher as the senior minister for equalities liz truss is known for trying to take on the so-called woke brigade in her most recent speech she said the country should embrace its history warts and all and insisted it's time to be proud of who we are and what we stand for is this a stance she hopes will appeal to the right wing of the party yes um, she's talking about we've got to end this age of introspection, which is, is a slightly odd thing to say in a speech to Chatham House, which is this sort of upmarket, prestigious sort of foreign policy think tank. Um, and probably the only thing it does do is specialise in introspection. So it's a slightly odd thing to say to them. For example, she talks about her comprehensive school where basically you couldn't learn anything about maths. All you could learn about was racism and sexism. You know, these are all good, easy, cheap shots that appeal to the um, the electorate because obviously I think people always got to remember that the electorate in terms of the Conservative Party is its membership and um, uh, one of the difficulties is how she's going to be able to use the Foreign Office as a uh, platform to become, uh, remain popular in the Conservative Party. How is she seen by her international counterparts? Is she a more serious face for the Global Britain brand? I think everyone's learning about her at the moment. I mean, one of the difficulties, I remember Jeremy Hunt talking about this, is that he was 
foreign secretary was that the danger of for a foreign secretary is you are just events happen and you're just basically turning the page of history you know how do you intervene to have an impact i mean obviously if you're education secretary you know your job is to look after schools and if you're um, healthy you're trying to deal with improve hospitals but when you're foreign secretary it's much more amorphous and your canvas is much larger so how she manages to have an impact is going to be um you know her real test uh, and she wanted particularly and i think a lot of other foreign ministers noticed this that she was going to push and stress this issue of um the uk making this um pitch towards the indo-pacific but very soon after that pitch was made vladimir putin popped up and a slightly more traditional authoritarian enemy became um, the focus of her thinking Let's look at how Liz Truss has been performing recently while Downing Street is tying itself in knots over these Christmas parties. Over the weekend, as you said, Liz Truss hosted a G7 meeting over a possible invasion in Ukraine. How do you think she performed? Did she look like a stateswoman-in-waiting? I think she's. it's still slightly early days. I mean, I remember asking her at the uh, G7, you know, how can you be this uh, bulwark against um, Russian authoritarianism when at the same time the city of london is this sort of got the welcome mat out for all these putin uh, kleptocrats uh, and there's been in fact a lot of reports about that and i just said is it not a good idea at least to have a review about how the laws we have to fight corruption and money laundering work in the uk and um, you know i think she was slightly gasping for air in terms of an answer or a credible answer I mean, it's the Achilles heel, heel that the UK has on this issue. So there's still a lot of work to be done. During the G7 summit you mentioned there, Patrick, Liz Truss held a bilateral meeting with Anthony Blinken and delivered a major speech at the Chatham House think tank on Britain's future just before. It does all feel a lot more serious and far away from the questions the Prime Minister's facing over those Christmas parties. Has Liz Truss been successful in distancing herself from it all? Yeah, I mean, I think... There's a disjuncture between the issues that the uh, Prime Minister's found himself wrapped up in and the wave of really, really serious international issues happening at the moment. And she's been able to benefit from that just by talking about her brief and making sure she's not dragged into any of this Boris Johnson material. And she's at all the press conference she's held so far, she gets asked questions about Johnson and parties, and she just says there's an inquiry underway and just bats it away. The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is seen as another leading contender to replace Boris Johnson should he go. If there were a leadership contest tomorrow, Patrick, do you think she could win it from Sunak? I think it's possible. It depends when it happens. I think Rishi Sunak's got a problem at the moment because she can portray herself as a kind of low-tax conservative, and he can't do that at the moment. So if for some strange reason, this election happened amongst the party leadership in the next year. I think she's better positioned than than the Chancellor is. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot of instincts are going to warm towards her in given the electorate you're dealing with. I think you know, there will be polls which will obviously show whether she has got the support of the membership and that the kind of slightly random polling you have in Conservative Home isn't really a kind of scientific guide. And I, I think, you know, it's quite possible for her over the next year to avoid any major trouble. And if there is an election, I think she's very well positioned to, to win. Thank you very much for those insights, Patrick. Thank you. 
And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland and Joni Grieve wrap up another turbulent year in Washington and look ahead to what 2022 might bring. Now, before I go, I want to let you know about this year's Guardian Charity Appeal, which went live this week. Each year, we reach out to our readers and listeners and ask you to help us make a difference to people who really need it. We've chosen to focus our appeal on the climate crisis this year, which, as our reporting has shown, is affecting our world in severe and unexpected ways. We are partnering with charities that are focused on grassroots initiatives and are reaching those directly affected by the climate crisis. So donate today at theguardian.com forward slash charity 2021 or speak to your favourite Guardian journalist during our annual Charity Appeal Telethon. Phone 020-3353-4368 on December the 18th between 10am and 4pm and you might end up chatting to Catherine Viner, John Crace, Jonathan Friedland or Marina Hyde. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Peter Walker, Aubrey Allegretti and Patrick Winter. The producer was Jolene Goffin. I'm Rowena Mason. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.